but we've spent this past few weeks looking at the rhythm of life and uh, really where we're concluding, if you, if you look at the Bible, we started and we spent quite a few weeks thinking about the rhythm of life from Genesis and we're going to spend the last two weeks in Revelation. And actually that says a huge amount. If we think about the Bible message, if we think the, the pattern and, and the communication, the revelation of God to us, one of the things that's really helped for us, helpful for us to think about is the way in which the beginning is set up, that the pattern of life as it should be is set up at the beginning in, revelation, in Genesis, and somehow it is restored in Revelation. I don't know about you, but it seems to me as though humanity is on a treadmill. It seems in our own lives, there are punctuations, and the punctuations are very often not the easiest. They're very often challenging and they're difficult. And then on a global scale, it seems as well as though we go through this continuous churn of challenge and difficulty I find it fascinating that um, back in 1941, Hitler said this, the year 1941 will be, I am convinced, the historic year of a great European new order. That idea of a new order, the supremacy of certain people, the stratifying of all of humanity, so that those who should be leading were leading in his mind, so that those who should be obliterated were obliterated in his mind. I, I find it quite surprising that when you think, you think back through life and you realize, I was born in 65, you know, that was only 20 years after the end of the, first, of the Second World War. It's 20 years. We've lived in Yorkshire more than that. Life passes, life churns. But the sad thing is, when we look around the world today, there are many strong men, using that technical term, who are wanting to repeat exactly the same refrain. We want to create a new order. A new order where the certain ones are ruling because they should be because they're made to be, because they have the right to be. And there are others that are subdued or obliterated because they ought not to lead. And then we step back and we realize that against that backdrop, against that authoritarian dictatorship, which might be happening at a global scale, exactly the same thing happens on a local scale. There are those who want their voices to be raised up and then the marginalized and the oppressed are pushed to one side and silenced. And we realize then that there is a counter to all of that when, you, when we think about it. That every good movement in human history, every triumphant step some of those great voices, Martin Luther King, as an example. What was he seeking to do? 
He is seeking to reverse the possibility of that order, which is oppressive, being replaced with a new order, which is good. And that, it seems, is the whole of the pattern of human history. How will we ever get out of this? How will we ever resolve that continuous challenge that whenever we feel, whenever we feel as though from a human societal point of view we've broken through, we'll never go back there, how will we ever move forward? I remember, don't you, the spirit of support and oneness and encouragement that occurred in 2020 during the COVID lockdowns. What did we say then? We'll never go back to that lack of community. We'll never go back to when this has resolved all sorts of things. And yet, what has it done? Has it? Absolutely not. It seems to me as though when we look at it, we're kind of hopeless as humanity. We're hopeless and helpless. Because every strong, powerful voice is just another voice of a man or a woman competing against another strong, powerful voice of another man or woman. Does the Bible give us any hope against this desperate rhythm of life? Well, thankfully, the whole of the Bible from beginning to end, is preparing for what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The whole of the journey of God's communication to this world is precisely this. Way back when it started, you rejected me, and my purpose is to save you. That's the core of the Bible. If you want to understand anything of the Bible, it's that. It's God saying, my purpose throughout human history is to save you. That's great news. What do we see here? Because in a lot of ways, these seven verses kind of draw in ideas from all over the Bible. And it kind of, it's almost like it takes these different concepts. And you know a diamond, the way it squeezes together until it becomes something beautiful. In a way, these seven verses are a bit of a diamond of the Bible where all sorts of ideas are squeezed together. Little thoughts that just throw out into our brain and it says, think about that, understand how that works because it's, it's, it's back there. I've been telling you this all along. That's what these seven verses do. So let's have a look at what they say and how they can help us. Firstly, let me give you a little bit of an introduction, not just to these seven verses, but to all of Revelation. The whole of the Bible is written in different, in different genres. Or in other words, whenever we read a bit, we shouldn't assume that it, it is literally to be taken. We use that all the time. If, I've got, if I'm showing my ignorance here, forgive me, but I think it was Wordsworth who said, I wandered lonely as a cloud or whatever it was. 
He wasn't literally a cloud. He's using a picture, a metaphor, he's giving us ideas. In a way, Revelation is that on steroids. <laughs> it's the idea of different pictures, different symbols, different ideas that are, it, I, I've described it in the past like this, it's the equivalent to the special effects of Steven Spielberg way back in the first century with words. It's the most breathtaking, mind-blowing ideas so that we can understand what God is saying to us. That's what we see here. So in verse 1 we see this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. First thing that we see here is everything is renewed. Everything is renewed. The direction of that restoration, however, is incredibly important. Look at what it says. The new, the new heaven and the new earth is coming down from heaven. Where's the direction of the restoration? It's from, from God. That's where the restoration is coming from. A new heaven and a new earth. We see in verse 2, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Right the way through the Bible, God has been saying, I am the one who's going to break in and save you. And right here we see, finally, the restoration is not in our own strength. It's in God breaking through and restoring from above. Whatever that above means. Again, the Bible uses this above kind of picture for heaven because we can't, it, it's outside of our kind of understanding and sight. And God says, I'm going to break in to your understanding and sight and restore it again. And so we kind of see that that speaks so incredibly powerfully, even into our our concerns of our immediate generation today. We look around, don't we, and we see the way Paul describes it. We feel as if the world that we're in is groaning. We look around and we see whatever it might be, whether we, whether we go wholeheartedly into the human effect of global warming or whatever it might be, what do we see? We see a world that is falling apart. We see a world that is crumbling and I know as well as you do, we are hopeless at resolving that. We are hopeless at resolving that. One and a half degrees. Can we do it? Can we save humanity? The message of the Bible is, <laughs> no, but I can so God says, no, you can't, but I can. And then we have this little idea right at the end. It says this. There was no longer any sea. Right back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we saw that there was this picture that is painted at the beginning where there is chaos and disorder. And there was kind of a crashing of water and sea. And that disorder... God breaks in and brings a peace. 
And in exactly the same way God is saying, with the Hebrew mind that says anything to do with the sea is chaos and uncontrollable, and God says there's no sea. Do I believe that when God says that, it's literally saying that the new restored heaven and earth has no sea? I, I don't think so. I think what it's saying is that the picture of chaos that we have no control over, God is the one who is able to break in and resolve the chaos. Have you ever wondered why Jesus calmed a storm on the sea? Is it a magic trick, a divine magic trick to show how he could stop water that was sloshing around? Have you, ever, have you ever slipped in the bath? That's an experience. Water up one end, out the other end. Can you stop even the water in your bath? And Jesus calms a whole sea. Why? Because it's him breaking in and saying, the chaos that you cannot control is in my hands. And I can control it in an instant. Does life feel like chaos to you? Is your experience at times as though I cannot get a grip on this? The events around me are beyond my control. The God who is proclaimed in the Bible, the God who we worship, and the God who by, through Jesus Christ we place our faith in, declares to us, I can control the chaos. Secondly, we see this. Look at uh, verse 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. That last bit, that last statement is amazing. It's amazing. If we see one thing at the beginning of the Bible, it's that we are present with God. He walks with those who He had created in the cool of the day. I have no idea what that means. What I do know is the picture that is portrayed is that God dwelt in person with his people. And God says here that the cosmic sigh of relaxation that is in that verse is the moment where it is all made right again because God is with his people again. Do you ever get one of those moments you've had a crazy day? And you finally, you kind of just relax and pause. And you, you, maybe you audibly sigh. That it, at last, it's right. It doesn't last though, does it? <laughs> There's another day. But this is the cosmic sigh where it was all right again. It's right because God is with His people. That is at the heart, from a human point of view, 
That is at the heart of what makes it right again. That we are with God again. That's what makes it right. Because all of those yearnings to be loved, to be known, to be safe, to be secure, to be surrounded with glory and righteousness and beauty and holiness, it's made right because God is present in Jesus. And that's when we will know the eternal cosmic sigh of restoration and rightness. Eden is restored. Second thing we see there is this. There is a new order. Look at what it says in verse 4. I, I find this one of the most hope-filled verses in the whole of the Bible. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's, that's, think about our, the rhythm of our lives. Think about the rhythm of our lives and ultimately how many songs, how many poets, how many artists have recognized this, that at the end of the day, the rhythm of our life is punctuated by life and death, by pain and mourning, by tears and sadness. At the, the very best of lives, the most joyful of lives, the, the most carefree, the most happy of lives still have that punctuating moment. And this is, this is where the new, that is our order of things right now. It's the pattern of life. It's the rhythm of life. The rhythm of life is marked by death, mourning, crying, and pain. It is. <laughs> We have great moments in between some of those. But we have those, those moments where, you know, we cannot help but see that at the end there is sadness. That's the hopeless experience of humanity. That the best without God, the best we can do without God is try to make it okay and pass on something for the next generation. That's the best we can do. Because the end is guaranteed. And God breaks in and he says, I know that's the order of life. I know that's the order of life and there's going to be a new order. And the new order will all of those things that punctuate life right now will be turned around. They'll go. It's not that we won't cry anymore, which we won't. It's not that we'll kind of shake ourselves down. It's that He will wipe away the tears. That's... Pretty amazing, really, isn't it? 
That's pretty amazing. Some tears are okay. You know, Matteo's not like an Italian to get emotional. Not at all. Um, there was definitely a tear there, mate, but it was a good tear. And I'm not wiping it away for you. But there are tears that are sad. There are tears that are broken. There are tears that we hide from everybody else around us. And all that we can do is we can wipe them away ourselves. And they come back. And God says, I'm going to break into your experience and I'm going to wipe away your tears. I am going to wipe away your tears. I find that breathtaking. What that means is that the direct intervention of an eternal God is personalized to the extent that I know that the reversal of my pain is in him. He resolves it on a personal level. Death, mourning, pain, our current order, the current rhythm of life makes way for a new order. How can we know this? How can we have confidence now in this? One of the, the ideas that we see throughout the Bible again, we see again in verse 5. He was seated on the throne. If we followed through Revelation, we know this, that's Jesus. That's Jesus who's on the throne. The one who was, the one who was killed, the one who rose again is the one who's on the throne. John opens up right at the beginning and he's, he, he paints this ridiculous apocalyptic picture which doesn't make sense yet is at the same time incredibly beautiful. He says that the, there is a lamb standing who, was, who is slain. That doesn't make sense, does it? You can't have a dead lamb that's standing and yet at the same time John is saying that picture is incredibly important because the power of his death is carried into his living experience. And he lives. And then he says this. To those who are seated on the throne, I am making everything new, he said. And then he says this. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Write this down. That repeats again and again in the Bible. Back in Exodus, God makes a covenant, a promise with Moses, and he says this, write down these words. In Habakkuk, he says, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. That's Habakkuk who's been told to write it down because this is happening. There's one thing that we understand about God. When he says write it down, it's something that is singularly important and it's something that we can therefore trust in. I'm making a covenant with you, he said to Moses. And then the covenant is finally seen in Jesus. That's the covenant. All the way through, the covenant looked like something else. 
that couldn't be fulfilled, and then it's finally fulfilled in Jesus that becomes a new covenant. It's kind of an old promise that's a new promise. It's the same and new. But it's that right at the center, these promises that God makes that we can be sure of. So that in verse 7 it says, it is done. There's another time when Jesus says this. <laughs> it's done. It's on the cross. And you see there's a full stop after it's done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. I'm at the beginning, I'm at the end. There's nothing more amazing than being connected with the one of supreme authority, the always is Jesus. And he says, I'm come to give you a spring of living water. A few weeks ago, we saw that he gave that to a broken woman. A physical drink that was passed and she was thirsty again was replaced in her soul with a satisfying, quenching water that never went away. That's great news. How can we receive it? All we need to do is be victorious. That's all. All we need to do is be victorious and straight away that sounds like we've got something to do, doesn't it? Verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit this. But again, one of the ideas that we have repeated through the Bible is this. I'm the one who's going to be victorious so that you can have my victory. There's a great verse in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. Exodus, way back at the early part of the Bible, gives an idea that follows through, right through to this. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That idea, plant it in your heart. The Lord will fight for you you only need to be still and look where? At the cross. Because that's the greatest victory. I'll fight for you so that you will be victorious. What does victorious look like? It looks like those who are restored, redeemed, and gloriously made right in Him. Your victory at my expense is essentially his message. So I'll tell you now, we are going to spend the rest of human history until Jesus returns with the repeated pattern of strong men saying, I'm going to turn over the world order that we see around us and replace it with something new. Let me guarantee you this. There will be a new order. And it won't be restored from this world. It will be restored from the eternal Christ.